From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A new era in space exploration begins with a successful splashdown. Orion, back on us. Colorado-based Lockheed Martin played a big role in Orion's design and construction. We'll talk about what's next as the U.S. eyes a return to the moon and beyond. Then, pomp and circumstance as we enter the world of Bridgerton via a live action experience. And I'm joined by a super fan from Colorado Springs who loves the romance of the pop culture phenomenon, but there's a deeper connection too. I feel like a lot of people who are not a person of color, you know, they don't realize how important representation is. Inclusivity, bling, and a little drama too. The ballroom is now open for everyone. Come on in. I donated my beat-up car to Colorado Public Radio. Because I was super attached to it. When it was time to get rid of it, it was just nice to know that it went to CPR. All I had to do was fill out a form online. Somebody gave me a call, and they came and picked it up. Our family was excited, one, to get the car off the street, and two, that it went to a good place. It kind of felt like I was giving back and saying thank you, like paying it back, but also paying it forward at the same time. If you have a car to donate, start the process at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. The camera image was a little fuzzy, and the Orion space capsule looked small as it dropped into the Pacific Ocean Sunday after an historic mission. But it raised a big ruckus in a school gym south of Denver, where Lockheed Martin employees held a watch party. of the Pacific, the latest chapter of NASA's journey to the moon, comes to a close. Orion, back on Earth. An official splashdown time. The Orion mission was NASA's first in a project called Artemis. It will eventually land astronauts on the moon to set up a permanent base for space exploration. If all goes as planned, the space agency's goal after that is Mars. Lockheed played a big role in Orion's design and construction, including the maneuvers that brought the spacecraft home. I'm joined by Mark Baldwin, who works with a team that studies how the vehicle responds to the challenge of spaceflight. Hi, Mark. Hi. Mark, you've worked on Orion for years, and you were at that watch party, so were you nervous? Uh, I wasn't nervous. It's it's exciting for sure to be part of that, but we spent a lot of time um, learning how to get ready for this. And we've done a lot of testing on the ground, a lot of preparation. And we were confident, not overconfident. But as we saw the parachutes come out and we got visual on the capsule, at that point, uh, I knew we were good. Now, we'll talk in a minute about what Orion did during the 25 days it was in space. But let's focus for a minute on the reentry. While watching the NASA feed, I noticed that Orion dropped 150,000 feet in just like seven minutes. What were conditions like as the spacecraft entered the atmosphere and came down? It's it's a bit hard to fathom. We were coming back at the Earth at 25,000 miles an hour. That's Mach 32, (laughs) which means if you were on an airplane, you could fly from L.A. to New York in less than six minutes at that speed. Oh, my gosh. And we don't have brakes like a car. We are literally using the atmosphere as our brake, which means 
we have to punch through it and we start to heat up. And mm. on the camera views we had for our flight test uh, in 2014, you could actually see the air around the capsule melting into plasma. That's how fast we were going. But we did something unique that's never been done with a human-rated spacecraft before. We did what's called a skip entry, mm, which, yes. as it sounds, it's like we hit the atmosphere, but we kind of like in the movies where we say, pull up, pull up. We, uh-huh. We intentionally skipped back out of the atmosphere, got back to zero G, and part of the reason was to uh, slow us down and to lower the heating a bit, and then we dove back into the atmosphere, and that allowed us to actually hit uh, with a lot more precision the target landing site. And Apollo actually had this ability, but they never used it because they simply didn't have the computational power. They didn't have the ability to analyze. This time we did, and so we pulled off the maneuver, and we we did quite well. Now, some folks will remember the last time NASA went to the moon with the Apollo program in the 1960s and 70s, and watching the landing Sunday, it looked a bit like Apollo with the parachutes and then the landing, but Apollo couldn't have done that skipping maneuver, right? Correct. Correct. (laughs) And if you look at where Apollo landed on a map, if you drew a vertical line on the map of the Earth, they landed all up and down that line. This gives us a lot more accuracy to land exactly where we want when we actually hit the target site within uh, 2.1 nautical miles. And I understand you were able to meet one of the Apollo engineers whose job was similar to yours back in the day. So what was that like? I was. That was a, a crazy day at work. I mean, I just get a phone call and here's somebody I don't know and... Uh, After a few minutes, I come to realize he had my job 50 years ago. Wow. (laughs) And there was this this immediate connection, though, because we both understood the underlying physics and engineering of what it's like to try to design a spacecraft to withstand splashdown. And so while those same fundamentals still exist, the, the tools that we have today, the computer models that we can make and the amount of simulations we can run, I mean, he... He was very gracious, but he Mm. said, you know, we did everything with slide rules and all (laughs) of his equipment is in a museum now. But uh, he understood that the advancements we have and the tools we have available today give us a lot more capability. So kindred spirits here connecting. That's awesome. So the next step is supposed to happen in two years. That's when a new Orion capsule will take astronauts up up to orbit the moon with the conditions you've described. I'm thinking... If I were an astronaut, I might want more than one test beforehand. Can you speak to the issues of safety? Well, this is actually our second flight test. The first one we had was in 2014. That was Exploration Flight Test 1. That only went around the Earth twice, and it was only a four-hour mission. This was a 25-and-a-half-day mission. And this gave us a lot of options to see what we needed to accomplish um, mm-hmm. in terms of you s- uh, hopefully people have gone online and if you haven't go online and look at some of the photographs we got from the mission it's amazing we got great video great photos because we had cameras on what's called the solar arrays our power generators and that type of activity not only can we bring the public with us to see what it's going to look like, but really we were doing a lot of technical, uh, what we call flight test objectives or activities to really flesh out the system. And we stress tested this this flight. We went beyond what we should, and we knew we were still in the limits of what we can handle, but we wanted to really see how the spacecraft could, could perform before we do uh, any astronauts around the moon. Tell me a little bit more about what Orion did over the last few weeks. 
So we went uh, 268,000 miles past the moon. We traveled a total of 1.4 million miles. We had additional payloads on board. So you asked about crew safety. One of the things I personally work on is we had a seat and a mannequin in a suit. We had instrumentation on that seat. That's actually a seat that we're going to reuse multiple times, in fact. Uh, We also had radiation-sensing torsos that are like body blocks. One of them had a vest on and one of them didn't. Mm-hmm. And those two, we will compare how much radiation did the one without the, the vest ha- gain and how much did the one with the vest. Um, in addition, we have sensors all over the vehicle. We, uh, part of my team, we're called Loads and Dynamics. We look at all of that information. How did the structure perform? What happened during different phases of flight? So thermal and power, radiation, all these things are um, different aspects of deep space flight that you need to understand before you put any humans on that spacecraft. Now, I understand you're a biomechanical engineer, and that means you work on what's going to happen to the humans inside the capsule. Give me an example of what you've done there. Well, um, honestly, I wasn't an aerospace engineer in the beginning. So when I started in this job, I didn't really understand vibration very well, Mm -hmm. mechanical vibration. So I actually volunteered to be a human subject at Johnson Space Center in Houston. Uh, I was in a suit for two days, seven hours on a shaker table, which is a mechanical device that simulates the vibrations of what it's like to lift off and go through ascent. But by doing that, I could literally connect the numbers on the plots to what it felt like for the crew to ensure that once we finally characterize like this mission, Artemis 1, the data we're getting in the first couple minutes, I can understand would crew have been okay? Could they have operated the controllers? Could they have read the screens? Now back to the splashdown, did anything, uh, was there anything that didn't work so well as planned? The entire reentry sequence went uh, almost perfectly. I mean, wow, we, great. Yeah, there were a lot of things. We did have uh, communications blackout periods, which were expected because, again, the air is being melted around you. You can't get signal through that. So we couldn't quite see what was happening during that. But everything visually looked like it went perfect. We'll look at the data and we'll have to characterize everything we saw and make sure um, we're ready to go for Artemis too. Well, is there anything that worked better than it was expected? We did. We fired thrusters beyond the duration we normally would uh, to try to create hot uh, plumes of gas on the exterior solar arrays, and the vehicle still was fine. Um, when you're in deep space, too, radiation can wreak havoc on electronics. So all of this was expected and known. So we did see those events, but you know, Orion has redundancy built in from the onset because we we knew these types of things would happen and we could recover. And we proved that we actually recovered from any radiation exposure on this flight. Now, what does this mission mean for the future? This is really uh, the first step. And in, in, in some people ask, what's the difference between Artemis and Apollo? We intend to go to the moon this time and stay. And not just to colonize the moon, but to learn how to live and to continue to push beyond because as the NASA administrator said on Sunday, the goal is eventually to get to Mars. So we are building those technologies which with each one of these flights. And as we progress, we want to get to things like lo- lunar rovers and robots and other aspects that will give us 
really the next generation the ability to stay and continue to push further into space. And you mentioned Mars earlier, that that is uh, the next frontier. (laughs) What are the challenges in getting to Mars? Well, it's a lot further. It's going to take a lot longer. Uh, We would have to solve a lot of new problems. There is an atmosphere on Mars. And in fact, there is a, a project being developed right now called Mars Sample Return, where we're sending a variety of different satellites and devices to go get soil from Mars, and then you got to bring it home. So the return trip is something we've not really tried, right? We have Curiosity, we have other rovers on Mars right now, but we haven't really brought things back. Of course, you want to bring the people back. So all these technologies (laughs) we're developing, even a lunar landing gives us some information on how best to execute those things, because you got to land and then you got to get back. Yeah, I would imagine they want to get back. Well, this is absolutely fascinating. Mark, thanks, thanks for joining us. Sure. Thank you for having me. Mark Baldwin is the Orion Landing Structural Lead for Lockheed Martin Space Systems, which is headquartered just outside of Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Celebrate the season with other CPR listeners and see radio in the making. Tickets are on sale to the 7th Annual Colorado Matters Holiday Extravaganza. Join us Thursday, December 15th. You'll hear stirring Christmas covers, sparkling originals. There will be comedy, Hanukkah at Colorado's oldest synagogue, and Kwanzaa choreography. Tickets at CPR.org slash holiday. Supported by First Western Trust. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Colorado Springs continues to mourn after the attack on Club Q last month. This is a city well known by some for its military roots and conservative religious values. So how does the LGBTQ community fit in? CPR's Haley Sanchez found the answer is nuanced and has changed over time. Donaciano Martinez grew up in Colorado Springs in the 40s and 50s. He remembers meeting other gay men in Acacia Park late at night or hanging out in the alley near the city's most visible gay bar at the time. There was a lot of fear. We never let each other know our real names. We never let people know where we went to school. Very secretive underground. His family had moved to Colorado Springs from northern New Mexico in search of a better life and more opportunities. And my name in the gay underground was Manuelita, which is after one of my grandmothers. And she would probably roll over in her grave if she knew that I was in the gay underground using her name as my alias. He says being Chicano in the city at the time meant running into a wall of racism. And all the different restaurants and theaters and downtown Colorado Springs, they would put in the windows signs, handwritten signs, No Mexicans or dogs allowed in here. And they lumped us in with dogs. As he got older, Martinez became active in peace and justice movements and campaigned for people like Lyndon Johnson. He also protested against the war in Vietnam. And in 1969, after the Stonewall riots in New York, Martinez co-founded Colorado's chapter of the Gay Liberation Front. The group put out in-your-face flyers. We put, do you think gays are revolting, question mark? And then down at the bottom, we put, you bet your sweet we are. Martinez received death threats, and resistance didn't come from just straight people. Some in the gay community pushed back, too. They said that we were going to make things worse 
by being open. We've been underground for so long, why can't we just leave it like this? Don't rock the boat. As Martinez struggled to bring the gay community into the open in the early 70s, Rick Brown struggled just to make it through high school as a young gay man in a military family. Today, Brown is known to many as Sable Gordon, the oldest performing drag queen in Colorado Springs. But back then... I was called a all the time, and I hate that word. That word destroyed me. But I never tried to kill myself or anything. I just dealt with it. Just tried to live my life as best I could. Gordon came out when she turned 28, and she was surprised by her family's support. One day, I just kind of had a breakdown, and I just told my mom, and, and she said, you know, what makes you think we wouldn't love you any less? Along with her family, Gordon found support at one of the city's progressive churches. Pikes Peak Metropolitan Community Church became an essential place for her and others. We had a helpline that I called that was in the phone book. When we had a phone book, they would assist you with who to go contact and talk to. And that was very helpful at, at that time. Things got harder for the Springs gay community in the early 90s. That's when Focus on the Family moved to the city. It's a conservative, evangelical ministry. Organizers fought against gay rights. And soon, other groups with similar goals followed. In 1992, Colorado Springs was the starting point for the Amendment 2 campaign. It made it illegal to include LGBTQ people in anti-discrimination laws, meaning they could be excluded from things like housing and jobs. It was appalling, but it was personally offensive and very scary to think that people misunderstood a subpopulation of Colorado Springs as, as drastically as they misunderstood us. Jonelle Neighbor was a lesbian working as a school psychologist in the city at the time. She never told administrators about her sexual orientation. She feared a parent may falsely accuse her of misconduct with students, and she didn't want to ruin her reputation or lose her job. I, I wasn't the best person I could have been, which is so frustrating because I loved the profession and I loved helping students, but I always had a little gremlin on my shoulder telling me I better be careful, I better be, watch what I say, I better not reveal this about myself. Through the early 2000s, Colorado became slowly more open to gay people. The state passed legislation that protected against discrimination. But to Liz Smith, who was in high school at the time, the environment still felt unfriendly. Back then, I did not see anything in this community that was for me. I did not see LGBTQ people anywhere. I did not see things that I loved, like the arts and theater and things like that. She started a gay-straight alliance at her school, one of few such groups in Colorado Springs high schools at the time. The school was great and allowed me to create the club, but there was so much rhetoric and hatred around the community that is still present today and I think more inflamed today even than it was. She moved away for college, something she couldn't wait to do. After graduating in 2012, she came back to Springs and there was a noticeable difference. There's pride flags hanging in windows all over downtown, which is something growing up here I never could have imagined happening. The city's growing arts community is where Ashley Cornelius has experienced the most joy. She's the Pikes Peak Poet Laureate and says the group Keep Colorado Springs Queer became her safe haven before she even identified as queer. I would go to these events and I was like, oh, I think I just like it here, but I don't know if I'm queer, but it just feels good. And then I was like... Actually, it feels good for a reason. 
Cornelius and Smith say the transient nature of Colorado Springs due to the military can make building community a challenge. People are less inclined to plant roots and invest in the city, which delays progress. Colorado Springs is very sprawling, and it was easy to feel isolated as an LGBTQ person uh, if you just didn't know anyone in your immediate circles who shared identities and experiences with you. There are more places now that are more intentionally inclusive, and more businesses are run by and for the LGBTQ community. Thanks to some virtual advancements, thanks to a lot of outreach from certain members of the community and certain community organizations, I think the distance between us has shrunk. Despite the welcoming spaces, Cornelius, who is Black, has experienced hate and homophobia. Our town gets a really bad rap, and I will say not for unfactual reasons, right? It is true, and there is a lot that happens here, but I want people to know that like Colorado Springs is full of queer, beautiful people, that it is full of like a BIPOC community, that there is love and joy and laughter, and that we have always existed in Colorado Springs. Cornelius says hate can't be the loudest voice in the room or the city. I'm Haley Sanchez, CPR News. Bimverite's Kevin Beatty contributed to this report. You may check out photos on our website at CPR.org. Household solar energy is mostly for the rich. The price of technology and equipment has dropped in recent years, but buying and installing rooftop solar panels is still out of reach for many. One Colorado nonprofit is trying to change that and help lower-income households go green. CPR's Miguel Otarola found it's doing that by finding and refurbishing used solar panels. Solar panels now cost half as much to install in Colorado as they did a decade ago. But for most of the state's low-income residents, they're still too expensive. Last year, only 11% of installations in the state were for households making less than $50,000 a year. Research shows that households with rooftop solar tend to be whiter and wealthier. Rich Stromberg says that doesn't have to be the case. He's the director of Equitable Solar Solutions, a nonprofit that installs pre-owned solar panels for low-income households. The idea started three years ago as a class project. Stromberg had spent years leading the wind and solar program for the Alaska Energy Authority and was now a graduate student at Western Colorado University in Gunnison. When a professor asked him to speak to her class, he brought with him a dozen solar panels that had come from a rooftop in southern Colorado. They're almost 20 years old. They still produce 82, 83 percent of the original power. So why would we throw these away? The students said homeowners could donate their older panels instead of dumping them at a landfill. Since then, Equitable Solar Solutions has installed rooftop solar on five homes. Stromberg says each project cost about half as much as installing a new system. The nonprofit partners with Habitat for Humanity and the state's weatherization assistance program to install the panels. Stephanie Encinasajondo is the director of the Weatherization Assistance Program. It's a great entry point into solar for folks. Um, and I think the more we can be able to scale that, the more people we can help. Stromberg says that means building community solar gardens that allow renters and other residents to lower their energy bills. I know how to get there, but we have to demonstrate to others that, uh, that we can do it. He says they may do so soon with new projects in the works to bring solar to mobile homes in Gunnison and a retirement home on the Front Range. I'm Miguel Otarola, CPR News. When we come back, we escape reality and immerse ourselves into the world of Bridgerton right here in Denver, how the pop culture phenomenon of the Netflix show is both inclusive and inspiring to many. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.
We are so grateful to our members, donors, and sponsors. You are such an important part of the work we do here every day. CPR News, CPR Classical, Indy 1023, Denverite, and KRCC in Southern Colorado wouldn't be possible without you. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio family. And on behalf of listeners all over Colorado, thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Now it's time for a little fun. The Queen's Ball, a Bridgerton experience, is an immersive live event now playing in Denver. It taps into the pop culture phenomenon, and there's a lot of glamour, fantasy, and romance on the popular Netflix show, but there's also a deeper side that speaks to the value of diversity and inclusion. I recently got to dress up and see what all the fuss is about, and I was guided by the mother of all superfans. Hi, my name is Latrice Owens. I am originally a New Yorker. I've been living in Colorado Springs for about 10 years now, and I am a huge fan of the show Bridgerton. What made you fall in love with the show? I remember watching Cinderella when I was growing up, but not just any Cinderella, just the version that had Brandy in it. The um, singer it, Brandy, yes. And that <laughs> was groundbreaking at the time because it was a Black Cinderella. Yeah, it was a Black Cinderella, and it was a very racially diverse cast. And Bridgerton is a show that is exactly like that. And these days, there is no other show that was like that. And that was amazing to see. It was not something that was advertised that was going to be like that. So to just click on it and see that was amazing to me. And the show, of course, is executive produced by Shonda Rhimes, famous for shows like Grey's Anatomy, Scandal, How to Get Away with Murder. And as you mentioned, the show is really uh, celebrated for what some describe as colorblind casting. And we'll get into that in a second. But just for the premise, can you tell us, for a person who does not know about Bridgerton, what is the basic plot of the show? Oh, goodness. So it's very much a enemies to lovers sort of trope that is done very well. So essentially, the Duke, this very handsome man, comes into town and he's very much a, you know, aloof character. Um, And there is a young lady who, you know, she's a very well-spoken, well-respected member of society who everybody loves and is adored. You know, they get together and plot that they're not going to fall in love. There's going to be a ruse, but they end up, you know, coming together and there's a big mystery and they end up hating each other. But, you know, love is love and it's, it's a, a whole big to do. Pearls are clutched and, you know. <laughs> Clutch the pearls, as they say. Yeah, it sounds like our favorite soap operas, like what we love about dramas in general. It's like that tension and conflict, but, you know, but then there's the passion. Oh, absolutely. And then ball gowns and, you know, feathers and hair and bodice ripping. It's it's the whole <laughs> shebang. <laughs> oh, so it's basically like the old school version of The Real Housewives. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Think Fabio and, you know... <laughs> rose petals and horses and carriages. It's it's the whole thing. You talked earlier about how Bridgerton, as I described, has really a colorblind casting. And some people say 
color conscious casting, meaning we purposely wanted to put people of color in the mix because many people don't get to see themselves in this state of opulence, you know, with the gowns and the wigs. And as you mentioned, the pearls and the diamonds. Can you talk to me as a person of color, what it means to you to see people of color shown in that way? Yeah, I feel like a lot of people who are not a person of color, you know, they don't realize how important representation is and how hurtful it can be to not see yourself in a place where you are revered or, you know, constantly seeing your place where you are downtrodden and put in these scenarios constantly where you are the underdog. Like it's very wearing on the soul. And these shows like Bridgerton, where it's normalized, where you are constantly shown in a place of normalcy, like it's normal for you to be the hero or normal to be even in in the background as a cast member, Mm -hmm. being a shopkeeper, like a normal everyday human, not like a slave or a housekeeper or a nursemaid or a servant. It's so- Or in the hood, dodging bullets. (laughs) Yeah, and that's actually, I spoke to my mother recently Um, And she'd never told me this before. I'm 35 years old. She told me that growing up, the whole reason why she never wanted me and my sisters watching TV at a young age is because she did not want me to grow up with these subconscious preconceptions Mm. and be programmed to think that that is what I was going to be as a person. And she never, because she knew I would not understand that concept as a child, did not want Mm. me to watch TV because that's all she was shown in the media. She did not want us watching TV because those are the only roles that people of color played on television. So the Bridgerton experience is in Denver. And I'm going to read what the description says. The queen herself invites you to a once in a lifetime evening of music and dance, complete with acrobatic performances, interactive experiences, a stunning dance show, and plenty of surprises. Well, I'm excited because I, again, I have an appreciation for the show and what it means in, you know, pop culture, but also to people. And you are going to be my guide. And so part of the Bridgerton experience, of course, is dressing up. Now, you don't have to dress up. So those who do want to attend, uh, you, you don't have to do it. But for a lot of people, that is the fun of it. Like you're not only watching a play where you just kind of show up and sit there, you are in the play, so to speak, and you have to dress the part. So let's talk about our attire. So I will tell you, I am going to be a little more traditional, wearing a gown and a drape and heels, which I, you know, have not worn so much since the pandemic. So like if I fall, then you may have to catch me <laughs> because <laughs> I, have, I have not been wearing heels like I used to. Um, but I also had uh, found a crown. So I, I will get to be a part of that. And also some, you know, sparkly, blingy, like jewelry to kind of accent my dress that's very sparkly. So tell me about your attire. Oh, man. So I definitely uh, will be going off the beaten path a little bit as a non-binary queer human on this earth. 
I don't think that a gown will resonate with me at all. So I'm going to be wearing more of a gentleman attire, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to add a little flair to it. Gaping the everyday to immerse ourselves into the world of Bridgerton. The pop culture phenomenon is brought to life with The Queen's Ball, a live interactive experience now taking place in Denver. I'm joined by superfan Latrice Owens from Colorado Springs, who I connected with through a Facebook group called Black in Denver. Before stepping into the ballroom, we met up with Isis Arias from Netflix. And so I'm standing here with Isis, who is uh, blinked out with her crown and pearls and some cute lace gloves. So the Bridgerton experience, tell me about it. So the Queen's Ball is a fully immersive experience that is inspired by the hit show Bridgerton on Netflix. When you walk in, you are fully immersed in 1800s Regency England. You are greeted by a floral tunnel that really transports you into the world. And you're greeted by all of these really amazing, visual, beautiful areas that you can really explore. Guests will enter a ballroom where we have live musicians playing and they'll get the opportunity to dance on the dance floor. And then the queen will come. Guests tend to present themselves for the chance to be the diamond of the evening. And there's a beautiful dance performance that happens as well in the ballroom. And we are now overlooking the ballroom. Can you describe it for us? Well, it is a black and white checkered floor. It is beautiful. There are red velvet curtains everywhere. There's florals, there's lights. This, of course, is an experience that is going on in different cities. And I understand you have used local performers to staff this amazing experience. Absolutely. So we do cast locally. And so we're really excited to have people that are from here and of here that really bring a unique perspective to these parts that they're playing as, you know, our cast. One of those performers is Chrisangela, a local recording artist and actress. She plays one of the Queen's valets. It's just really a treat to get to do something like this. It's not like a regular theater experience. You're not sitting in the audience watching the action happen. You're a part of it. You're in it. You are a part of the show. So what stands out for you watching the people experience this live? What stands out the most to me is that people are so familiar with the show Bridgerton. They already come with the heightened expectation of what it will be like. And you can really see the excitement. Everything is so amazing. Like, oh my gosh, look at the program. Oh my gosh, the dancers. Oh my gosh, the scenery. And that's been really, really beautiful to see people come in who already know the culture of the show and uh, they're in it. They're fully immersed. They're in character as well. And it's just giving people just an opportunity to just come and have a blast and dress up and play a colorful character and bow before the queen. And that has been really, really amazing. Latrice, do you have any questions for Chrisangela? I mean, I guess working on a production like Bridgerton, or I guess with a sort of colorblind casting, how does that feel different? It's refreshing. You know, there aren't a lot of opportunities to cross-culturally cast. And a lot of theaters don't take those opportunities even when they are presented with them, when they could cross-culturally cast. So it's very refreshing. It's very beautiful to see such a mixture of cultures, a mixture of peoples represented in the Bridgerton cast, as well as, you know, on Netflix and the Bridgerton show. It's very diverse, and I'm glad that we could replicate that. So, without further ado, let's enter the world of Bridgerton. The ballroom is now open. 
open for everyone. Come on in. Right this way. Yes, enjoy. This is our wisteria-laden tunnel, and this is really oh, the moment that transports you in to the ball. So it's these beautiful flowers draped in a kind of a canopy overhead, and it's like a tunnel. Latrice, you're our guide. Describe what's going on right now as we're entering the ballroom. Oh, so all of the eligible young ladies are grabbing their drinks, and everybody's very well dressed and being escorted. We're all milling about in anticipation. We've got floor-length gowns and taffeta. There are many a crowns. We've got tiaras, rhinestones. Are we making the papers? <laughs> they just gave out a copy of Lady uh, Whistledown Society papers. And of course, Lady Whistledown is like the gossip columnist of the town. Oh yes, it's double-sided, so let's see what she has to say. <laughs> They're very useful tips, I guess, on how to have a ball. So, Latrice, you're our super fan and our guide tonight to the Bridgerton Experience, the Queen's Ball, and we are in the middle of the ball right now. So how does it feel to be essentially on the set of your favorite show? It feels surreal to be holding a carbon copy of Lady Whistledown Society Papers. It is an exact replica, front and back. It looks exactly the same, down to the print. So I am very excited to look at this and see what type of gossip is in here. For those who don't know, Latrice has given me the primer on Bridgerton, and this is the page six of England at this time, in this period. It is the, the, the TMZ <laughs> of, of, of the Bridgerton experience, and Lady Whistledown knows all the gossip and all the juicy details of everything that's going on in this community. Is that accurate, Latrice? Oh, essentially, yes. It tells you about all the scandals, the who's who, the what's what's, who's in, who's out. She may even know things about you that you don't even know about yourself. <laughs> the queen herself will be here tonight, and I don't know if you know much about the, the Queen's Ball experience, but when you come here, you do have the option, if you remember from the show, of winning the queen's favor and being named, you know, the creme de la creme and the diamond of the ball. In this uh, Lady Whistledown Society paper, it tells you how to win her favor and attempt to be the belle of the ball, essentially. So make sure you take a look at the society papers because you might get some hot tips. Well, that is an insider tip. And it, of course, they're playing Madonna, which I think is absolutely hilarious, but we're all wearing our material girl attire, so it makes sense. <laughs> there's, there's dancing happening. There's certainly period dancing happening. Arms are up, there's twirling. The dancing continues as we wait for the Queen's arrival. All of the guests are summoned to the ballroom floor for dance lessons. Yeah, this is definitely a royal affair tonight. Everybody is having so much fun. I can tell that there are people who 
have no, no clue what's happening, but they have the biggest smiles on their faces, and that's really what it's all about. Wow, it's just so beautiful, like it really is. As you might expect, some people were already in the step of things, and some of us, well, we gave it our best effort. We also practiced bowing and curtsying, lest we fall out of favor. Side of the dance floor right now, watching the queen sort of stroll across the dance floor, and now we're told to come back on the dance floor. What? What? <laughs> Latrice, how does it feel to see the queen in person? I am mystified. <laughs> As the dancing continues, the Bridgerton story kicks back in. The Duke and his ultimate love, Daphne, take command in the ballroom, dancing with fans before finding one another. and the type of dancing that they're doing. Yeah, they're very convincing. I mean, the queen totally owned that role. Absolutely. And they said they use local actors for this, so I'd be very interested to know, like, what other performances that they're doing here in town. Like, (laughs) honestly, if you're not into, like, theater, maybe you would be after coming. partner is actually holding on suspended in air from the gold chandelier that I that I noticed when I first walked into the ballroom. They definitely make use of that chandelier. looking at each other like they really feel these emotions so if you never even watched the show you probably will want to watch the show now if you just came as like a plus one because someone talked you into coming you're going to want to watch the show and be like who are these people what is up with the duke of hastings because he's really into this woman
the romance, the drama, and a night of dancing all lead to the queen's big decision. Okay, the suspense. The queen finds her diamond. So we get to find out who curtsied the best, who she was most impressed with. So now they're looking around the audience like they don't know who they chose. So, oh, she's pointing at somebody. Oh. Oh. She's got a tiara in her hair. What does her dress look like? I can't see. white. It looks like it's white and taffeta. Very flowy. Oh, and she has the most amazing jewels. I I did notice the jewels when when I saw her on the side. She has like a beautiful necklace with a coordinating crown. It's beautiful. Oh, they're dropping glitter on her. Oh, she's so happy. She's wearing like a golden tiara. And you can have your rain of glitter on you too if you impress the queen when you come out. I thought that maybe they picked someone like in advance, but she is literally so shocked. This is not like a pre-planned thing. So the queen picks her diamond, her favorite of the ball perhaps the ultimate reward for an unsuspecting fan. But being here for this night of escapism is also reward enough for all of the fans immersed in the Bridgerton experience. So my name is Betty Stratton. I'm a drag performer here in Denver, Colorado. Uh-huh. I'm a huge fan of the Regency period. Okay. So well, it is here. very apparent. You have <laughs> you have to describe your attire very soon. Absolutely. So I have a Marie Antoinette-inspired pannier gown with uh, pink brocade and gold flowers on it that was made by a very dear friend of mine. And then I have a replica Marie Antoinette wig with pink roses and ostrich feathers. Awesome. <laughs> Why Bridgerton? What drew you to the show and why did you have to be here for this experience? The romance of it all, of course. That and also I've never seen a story told to such a modern audience with such beautiful diversity and beautiful characters and beautiful costuming. It's kind of a great blend between the old and the new. And I think that's so exciting for so many people. And also there's been so much that all of us as people have gone through in the past couple years. And I feel like there's something about just embracing beauty and elegance and loveliness and coming together for something like that. Uh, that's really enjoyable to be a part of. Well, you make that point. I mean, many of us wore sweats and um, pajamas for two years. <laughs> exactly. So this is quite a change. But this is, uh, I think about those who love sci-fi and how they love to dress up. So is this like that for you? Absolutely. And I'm, I'm outside of this. I, I'm a huge sci-fi fantasy fan as well. But I think um, getting to be lost in a world is what it's is what's so magical about it. So, so how are you enjoying it? Oh, it's beautiful. This is so much fun. I'm so glad I got to come. And then there's Emily Greenwood Lang from Superior. And so you drove into Denver tonight on a on a school night, as they say. Yes. And why? Because who wouldn't want to come and experience the decadence that is Bridgerton? It's like dress up for adults. 
fantastic. 40th and birthday party, 40th, too. Yeah, a 40th birthday party. Okay, happy birthday. Thank you. What a way to celebrate. You'll right? never forget. Exactly. And you are totally into the pictures. You're dancing. Uh, <laughs> describe your attire for us. Well, I am wearing a lovely turquoise satin gown with my embroidered green overcoat that makes me feel like a peacock. green, very Emerald, beautiful. Yes, Jewel. and it matches my crown. Absolutely. And that's why I picked it out. Absolutely. So, what did you think of the, the Queen's Fall? Oh, it was everything that I ever dreamed it could be. The Queen was stunning. The Duke was flawless. I'm going <laughs> to marry him. Did you see the emotion in Oh my God, dancing? you felt the love, you felt the passion, and you wanted to be that girl up there. <laughs> You want well, it to it's be really there. about a fantasy it for you. It is. It's the fantasy. It's it's the love. It's the passion. It's everything that is outside of the mundane every day. Let's get a final word from my super fan, super guy, Latrice Owens from Colorado Springs. All right, Latrice, uh, the ball is ending. And I have to ask, as our super fan, our super guide tonight of the Queen's Ball, Bridgerton Experience, what did you think? Oh, man, it was amazing. I kind of feel like Cinderella after the ball is over. Like, I definitely feel like, I don't know, my pumpkin has arrived. You know, I definitely have to go back to my ordinary life and that's not what I want, but you know, it was an amazing night. Well, there you have it, everyone. A Bridgerton experience, the Queen's Ball from our super fan, Latrice Owens from Colorado Springs. And I will say I was impressed. It was an amazing experience. And it's really like being in a play, like being in the production, not just sitting in the audience. It's just nice to see people hanging out, having fun, dressing up, and you know, really just kind of embracing life. So I think that's what I've gotten from this, and it's just an opulent experience. The Queen's Ball, a Bridgerton experience, plays in Denver through December 18th. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is CPR News and KRCC.